John Owen wrote, and we're really going to focus on this as that which is going to be the effect if we live without the mortification of sin and our lives. I guess if there's anything you get concerned about, there is something that A.W. Pink said in his commentary on Hebrews that really stuck with me, though the application he made of it may be a little different than I'm applying it to. But he said that the saints under the Old Testament were tested by the moral law and they failed the test because they tried to make a righteousness out of it. Being ignorant of God's righteousness, they went about to establish their own righteousness. And then he says that Christians under the New Testament are being tested by the gospel. And where they fail is they know that we are justified by faith apart from works by the substitutionary curse bearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't understand the priority and emphasis that being born from above, a new work has begun in us, but we are not perfected. We are being perfected, and they don't understand the importance of a continual life of holiness, not as cause and effect, and that's what we'll talk about. The cause and effect is Jesus Christ died. The effect is I believe in that and I'm justified, but is the means to the end of final salvation. So this is Something, and I'm going to read this sentence, and we're really going to, for the next few weeks, focus on. He said, John Owen, mortification prevents sin from depriving us of spiritual strength and comfort. Every sin that is not killed by the Spirit will certainly both, one, weaken the soul and steal its strength from it, and two, darken the soul to steal away its comfort and peace. So we'll be lacking strength to live the Christian life because we'll have grieved the Holy Spirit and we will lack the comfort and peace that should be coming with walking in the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body. So we'll lack comfort, peace, and joy. And I'm going to give you a shocking example of that. Like I shocked you into our study last week when I showed you whose book it was that I was using to study the mortification of sin. This is a letter that I received, and I don't have the answer to what this guy is going through. I have tried to help, and uh, I haven't heard from him in a while, and I wonder if he gave up on me. I cannot, if somebody has been living a backslidden life after making a profession And they are given over either to despair or fear, or they're given over to hardness of heart. It's a very tough thing for me to try to bring them back to a healthy condition. Some people I'm able to help. I've read so much on this. And it's not so much the counsel that I give them, but that I could point to things that others have written that is Without a doubt, some of the best things that have been written on this in the history of the church, especially from the Puritans on, but this is this man's letter. And this is what happens if you make a profession and you receive the joy of it and you walk in it for a while and then you refuse to carry on in a course of putting your sin to death. And we'll define all of these terms. We need to know what mortification even means, what putting to death the deeds of the body mean, what even the body means in the context of Romans 8, 13. But this is what he wrote. Hello, sir. 
I am absolutely at the end of myself and I have no one to speak to about it, so I'm contacting you as a sort of last-ditch effort. I was telling somebody yesterday that's what's been interesting about my ministry. I've been putting narrations on the internet for 20 years this year, starting with back when we were in the church in Holland. And a lot of times, you know, I'm putting these Puritan works and you know, works of comfort, reform writings, works on revival, works on church history, but so often, and I'm not sure why, a lot of times when I hear from the listeners, it's because that they are under a state of conviction, or in this case, a state of despair, and I guess if I could wager a bet as to why that is, it's because a lot of your churches in our day are not teaching at a pastoral to pupil level, pastoral counseling on experimental theology. The doctrine of Christian experience, I honestly believe, needs to be taught at a seminary level, and so the pastors would know how to counsel people who are in the worst cases of awakening, backslidden, and despair, and also to help people on to have the highest assurance of the reality of their faith. So he says, I'm 22 years old, I was saved when I was 19 years old after a season of very deep conviction of sin and my crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. This isn't even the full letter because it's pretty lengthy. In the following weeks and months, I had many experiences of a heavenly and rapturous joy over the salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ that I would constantly preach it to myself and overflow with the living waters bubbling upon within me referring to out of our inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. It was as if I was in heaven those very moments, and like Mary at the feet of Jesus, weeping and worshiping him for his infinite love and saving me. I had such nearness to God, such freeness in prayer, such earnest strivings after holiness, such fiery zeal to serve the Lord, such easy repentance, that I can say without a doubt it was the most joyous time of my life. I love the Word of God and my conformity to it, and I long to be conformed to it even more. These were experiences as such that I am absolutely certain no man can conjure up on his own. That lasted, as I would say, for a couple of months before I started to deal with sudden and very unexpected experiences of doubt, temptations to doubt the genuineness of my conversion of God's Word and all number of fiery darts which were being leveled at me, all of which frightened me very greatly, but which the Lord graciously carried me through. I had by and by continued to decline gradually from this point on, but was still exceedingly joyful over my newfound freedom in Christ, and was very zealous to give up every second of my life to the glory of God, serving Him in whatever way He saw fit, no matter how painful or lonely a path it may be, if only I could give my all and all to Him. About six months later, I began working a job at a place that I'm still at today. The work environment was very toxic, hostile, and worldly. Through my own negligence, not realizing the power of indwelling sin which yet remained in me, I was badly influenced by the godlessness of this environment, and I fell into many grievous sins. Worldliness, crudeness, bitterness, and so on. My spiritual state only continued to darken, though now at a much faster rate. I was no longer able to draw near to God in prayer or delight in reading His Word. My desires to strive after holiness and glorify God and all I did grew weaker and weaker to the point that they became imperceptible. Over the course of the past two and a half years, 
I have grown worse and worse and worse to the point where I feel totally and completely dead, hardened. I find that although I am aware of my sin intellectually, there no longer remains a godly sorrow as I once had. I find myself completely hardened, dead, and even stupefied by it. That is the only way that I know how to describe it. Hardness and deadness, I cannot pray. If I try, it's as if it is the Lord himself seems to shut out my prayers. Furthermore, I know that my prayers and repentance are not genuine anymore, seeing as they do not produce a fruit of genuine repentance and faith. My heart just keeps hardening. My mind and my understanding grow darker and darker. Now with that in the background, let me reread what I read to you by John Owen. Mortification prevents sin from depriving us of spiritual strength and comfort. Every sin that is not killed by the Spirit will certainly both, one, weaken the soul and steal its strength from it. He certainly confessed that. Two, darken the soul to steal away its comfort and peace. He certainly is experiencing that. So with that, we'll just look very quickly at Romans 8.13. But uh, just so that we could have this added verse in the background, I've asked Blake to read for us Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, and read it loud because we're trying to record it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, in the context of putting, put on the new man, he, Paul goes on to write... Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now, I happen to be at the same time that I'm narrating John Owen, again, on a mortification of sin. I believe I've narrated Owen for the fourth time this time and the proof of that is if you went on to sermon audio and did a search on the mortification of sin there are at least three other narrations of it and one of them is it's a reformed baptist church in holland michigan the other is it's still water revival books also on sermon audio and those are uh, probably close to 20 years old now. But Romans 8 verse 13 has five key points that need to be considered. Points that John Owen will develop at greater length in the following chapters of his work. They are as follows. Paul's term to mortify in Romans 8 13 is a verb. It is a command and thus there is in Owen's word a duty prescribed. The duty is mortify. Second, the people to whom the command is addressed are referred to as you. Third, John Owen says, there is a promise added to that command, namely, if you put to death, you will live. Fourth, there is a cause or means associated with the performance of the duty, namely, it is to be done by the Spirit. And Owen will say and show again and again in the subsequent chapters coming up how so many people have attempted to do mortification in their own strength. And it is the proper root of all false religion in the world. 
Fifth and finally, Owen observes that there is a condition which governs the outcome of Paul's proposition here. The condition is expressed by the little word, if. In order to really follow the rest of Owen's argument, you would do well having memorized a verse to run through these points in your mind's eye to make sure they are clear to you. But let's talk about this term, mortify. It's also said to put to death, to kill sin. That is, what you are doing is you're extinguishing and destroying all that force and vigor of corrupted nature which inclines to earthly carnal things. You haven't gotten rid of it. It isn't that kind of a death. Abraham was said to have his body now dead when the promise came to him. Abraham himself wasn't dead, but the procreation opportunities that you would have as a younger man, he no longer possessed. He was in that sense dead so that God can magnify himself by bringing a miracle out of that which was seemingly dead. So when we mortify sin, we are removing its vigor, its strength, its liveliness. To kill means to affect with or destroy by this death. But yet this word is used by our apostle not absolutely to destroy and to kill, so as that that which is so mortified or killed should no longer have any being, but that it should be rendered useless as to what its strength and vigor would produce. What do you mean? What it would produce. Sin, if it could have its way and be left unchecked, starts in the mind, gains a sense of the desires, and does not want to rest until it completes the highest level of sin that it could within that temptation. Every unclean look at a woman, if it could have its way, if sin could go to its end, would be adultery. Every time you lose your temper in traffic when somebody cuts you off, could that temptation go to its end and get what it is aiming at? It would be murder. That's what sin is aiming at. That's why it has to be checked in the root. It has to be dealt with in its very first inclinations. Mortification of sin is a duty always incumbent on us in the whole course of our obedience. This command testifies, which represents it as an always present duty. When it is no longer your duty to grow in grace then it will no longer be your duty to mortify sin. I like what the Puritan William Gurnall said about the Christian warfare. The body and the armor go off the stage together. He means when you die. No man under heaven can at any time say that he is exempted from this command if you through the Spirit do mortify, nor on any pretense And he who ceases from this duty lets go all endeavors after holiness. This duty being always incumbent on us, always pressing on us as a command to us, an urgent command, 
argues undeniably the abiding in us of a principle of sin while we are in the flesh, with with its fruits as that which is to be put to death. The vigor, the life, and the desire of it needs to be weakened and weakened more and more. If Owen says later in the treatise on the mortification of sin, and I need to give a little bit of a historical background. As I said last week, he did a number of lessons on the mortification of sin that were aimed at for teenagers in the year 1656. John Owen was 40 years old. But for 18 years later, he was doing a complete theology of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in 1674, and in that he deals with the mortification of sin again. So I'm going to gain what I can by going back and forth, because 18 years does give somebody a little bit more light on a subject that he treats, and I am thankful for that. He says, the scripture calls the sin that dwells on us, Romans seven twenty. One now it's amazing to me and I just cannot argue with them because they won't listen. I just tried this recently with a pastor who is in Frankfurt, Kentucky, who believed that Romans seven fourteen to twenty five is not talking about Paul as a believer. But mark my word, if you are not a believer in Christ, you are still are in enmity against him. So if that's not a believer in Romans seven fourteen to 25, the person who says that which I would do would still be at enmity against God. We know that from Romans 8, 7. Before you were born again, you are totally hostile to God. There's no affection for God in your disposition until you are born again. So how is it that they suppose that a person who is dead in sin, at enmity against God, at war with God, if he's not a believer, can delight in the law of God after the inward man? But enough of that. No man under heaven can at any time say that he is exempted from this command, nor on any pretense. And he who ceases from this duty, lets go his endeavors to holiness. So the scripture calls sin that dwells in us, the evil that is present with us, the law in our members. Let's talk about two things. What is that law and what are our members? Well, there are two kinds of law. There's a moral law, thou shalt not commit adultery. But there's also the law of gravity. If I jump off the top of this building, I'm going to fall to the ground. That's a law as well. Well, this is a kind of law that indwelling sin is. It is a principle that works as a law like gravity that as long as we live, that law is going to be putting forth its power. And the power it puts forth is against everything that is holy, love to God, the fruit of the Spirit, and so on. Sin, even because we are born again, it remains in us, but its very nature does not change. We are changed so that it does not have dominion over us, Romans 6.14, but sin's very nature is and always will be while in this world at enmity against God, at war with God, 
And it has one goal in a believer, and that is to make him an apostate and an agnostic. He apostatizes from the faith, and then he begins to doubt whether God exists at all because he is so hardened, he even doubts whether there is a God. That's what sin would aim at. Indwelling sin, which is the object of this duty of mortification, falls under a threefold consideration of its root and principle. It is there because God says, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between her seed and his seed. And that principle that is within the fallen man, his depraved nature, his corrupt heart is called sin. And in a believer, it is the remains of indwelling sin. Two, of its disposition and operations, it always is disposed to do the very same thing. It disinclines you to holiness and it inclines you to sin. Its nature has not changed, but its strength has been abated. It no longer has dominion, Romans 6, 14, but it always aims, though it cannot in a believer, it always aims to regain its dominion. King of the hill, it's me or God. And I'm against God, so sin is always at war against him, even in a believer. And of its effects, the effects are when sin is given into those dispositions and operations, it brings forth sin, and then sin, eventually its goal is to bring forth spiritual death, that which it cannot do in a believer. But remember I said that Mortification of sin is a means to an end, not a cause and effect. Cause and effect means if you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. In other words, eternal life is a gift of your putting to death the deeds of the body. That cannot be. It was a gift. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. But the mortification of sin is a means to the end of holiness, final salvation, final glorification. The root or principle of sin which by nature possesses all the faculties of the soul, the three faculties, the mind, the will or inclination, and the affections. It possesses all of these. And as a depraved habit inclines to all that is evil. Now, the Bible continually uses metaphor, so it speaks of the law of indwelling sin by the metaphor of an old man. There is an old man. There is indwelling sin. That is a metaphor. There is a new man. There is a new creation in Christ. That is a metaphor that the scriptures use. So it talks about the opposition of the new man to the old man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There is the inclination. You're inclined to something. Sin inclines to something. It wants it. It does not want to let the desire for it go. An actual disposition and operations of this principle or habit, which is called the body of sin, with the members of it. 
And that we call that a metonymy, the effect of something for what it aims at. So somebody says, I struck you with my arm. Well, it didn't end with the striking of the arm. The sin wanting to perfect its rebellion used the arm. So the Bible talks about the members are the things that are used by sin to act out what it aims at. The eye, the lust of this world, the mouth, tongue, The tongue is the expression of that inclination inside that wants to curse, that wants to murder. Its rebellion is communicated with the tongue, with the lips. Those are the members of our body. The flesh with the affections and lusts. The old man is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. These are the effects, fruits, and products of these things which are actual sins in which the apostle speaks. We serve sin as bringing forth the fruits of it. So his command is, because we were born again, we have died with Christ, Romans 6, 1. The result is that is we should not serve sin. And the fruits of this sin are of two sorts, internal and the figments and the imaginations of the heart which is the first way in which the lust of the old man acts out. This principle and its operation and effects are opposed and directly contrary to the principal operations and fruits of holiness. So everything that is in Galatians 5, 16, and 17 is contained in Romans 7, 14 to 25. The flesh lusts against the spirit... In the spirit against the flesh, listen, so that you cannot, not in the way you should, you cannot do the things that you would. That's exactly what Paul's expressing in Romans 7. So that we cannot do the things that we would because there's this war going on between the flesh and the spirit. The lusting of the flesh and the lusting or desires of the spirit Walking after the flesh and walking after the spirit, living after the flesh and living in the spirit are opposed to each other. This is the opposition that is between the body of sin with its members and the life of grace. And there is this universal contrariety. They're contrary one to another. They're opposite one to another. They contend against each other. They are at war between each other, between grace and sin the spirit and the flesh and their inward principles, powers, operations, and outward effects. But what is the mortification of sin? And this is why we're doing this study. The mortification of sin consists in three things. And we're going to talk about this because for so long I read this and I said, all right, you're telling me to kill sin. How do I do it? This is the definition of it. And we'll work this out, show you how to work this out in your practice as we go along. The mortification of sin consists in three things, the cherishing and improving of the principle of grace and holiness, which is implanted in us by the Holy Ghost. He that has begun a good work in you, that's the principle of grace that is within you, will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus, by all the ways and means which God has appointed Secondly, in frequent actings of the principle of grace in all duties, internal and external, 
where the inclinations, motions, and actings of the Spirit in all acts, duties, and fruits of holy obedience are vigorous. Your spiritual man is vigorous, kept in constant exercise. You're in a healthy spiritual condition. You abide in the fruits of the Spirit. You are the opposite of this guy whose letter I read who says, I feel dead, I pray, and I don't even know if God hears my prayers or is he casting them off. That's the sign of an unmortified heart. But when you abound in the contrary fruits of prayer, the effects of reading the Word and how it continues to enliven that inward spiritual man, by doing and feeding those things and keeping them in healthy practice and exercise, the sin principle becomes weakened. But we can't let it up because Owen goes on to say, and I thought this was so interesting, if you leave it alone, after a while it recovers the strength that it is lost and then it stands up and it's ready for a battle as if it's never taken any blows at all. <clears throat> so he says, well, how in the world do you suppose that you're going to be a victor in this fight if you set, let indwelling sin just pummel you and pound you and you just take it and you don't do anything about it? That person can't begin to fight this battle. So I'll end with a paragraph by Archibald Alexander, and then I'll open it up for any thoughts that you guys want to add to this. Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Religious Experience. Young Christian converts are prone to depend too much on their joyful frames, and they love high excitement in their devotional exercises. So that was this guy at the beginning of his course. But by the grace of God, their Heavenly Father cures them of this folly by leaving them for a season, for a time to walk in darkness and struggle with their own corruptions. But when they are more sorely pressed and discouraged, however, he strengthens them with might in the inner man. That's part of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Strengthen me with might by your spirit in the inner man. God enables them to stand firmly against temptation. Or if they slide, he quickly restores them. And by such exercises, they become much more sensible of their entire dependence than they were at first. They learn to be in the fear of the Lord all the day long and to distrust entirely their own wisdom and strength. And to rely for all needed aid on the grace of Jesus Christ. Now such a soul will not readily believe that it is growing in grace because the paradox is the more you grow in grace, the more you see of what indwelling sin remains within you. So sometimes you're most holy and walking closest to God when you feel most at a distance from him. So he says, such a soul will not readily believe that it is growing in grace, but to be emptied of self-dependence and to know that we need aid for every spiritual duty and even for every good thought is an important step in our progress and piety. The flowers may have disappeared from the plant of grace and even the leaves may have fallen off and wintry blasts may have shaken it. But now the plant is striking its roots deeper and becoming every day stronger to endure the rugged storm, end quote. So 
Anything strike you about this or that you could add to it? Who wants to go first? Go ahead, Blake. Um, one of the most important things that you said was there isn't enough teaching on experiment, uh, ex- experimental or experiential theology on a pastoral level. That's so important because what I've noticed and been analyzing is that good intentional brothers in Christ will say phrases like, well, brother, you just got to trust in Christ, or you just got to take off the flesh and put on Christ. The problem is, is this is what I call half-hearted counsel, where you just give some sort of, you know, statement or saying, but you don't even show them what that looks like. You don't even demonstrate what that's done to your own life. So what happens is, is they'll lose a sure, they'll uh, begin to doubt their assurance of salvation because they're like, okay, but I just, I don't know what that means. Can you tell me what it means to trust in Christ when I'm not paying, when uh, I have a bunch of payments to do or in any other situation of life. So I think that was so very important from all this is that there should be more experimental theology teaching. So then it's not only we're getting these phrases that we've been, you know, studying for a while, but how do we truly apply it so we have that assurance of salvation and saying, I'm going through these things, but I know God's got this. Because he's provided in the past. Well, I'm going to give you a historical background to this to prove this point that should be very interesting. I love to read reviews and theological journals, and each of the Christian seminaries had their own. There is a biblical repertory in Princeton Review that came out starting in 1829 for Princeton Seminary. This seminary started in 1812. There was one for Andover Theological Seminary, and I had the very first volume, and it was called uh, 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 Theological Review. I know the editors were Leonard Woods and uh, Charles uh, Bush or something like that. And I love to dig in the really old ones and find reviews of what these men said about John Owen on these experimental works. And I know that... uh, the volume out of Andover Theological Seminary had one. It was Charles Buck was the other guy's name, and Leonard Woods. And they did a review of John Owen's work on a treatise on indwelling sin and so on. This was 1838, and I'm reading this, and they're lamenting that these works are not preached from the pulpit as they were in a bygone day. I said, well, if that's 1838... Where does that leave us? The other one that I read, it was out of the Scottish uh, Presbyterian Church in Scotland, 1851, and they were talking about his practical works. And you could see that even then there was a lament that the real practical divinity that the Puritans were bringing, like John Owen, were already starting to be missed from the pulpit. The second example of that is... you can't be around me very long and hear me talking about these subjects without me mentioning in a book called 
Cases of Conscience, one of the best books I've read about all these practical things. And I just got a brother to uh, publish it in PDF and Moby format, which is Kindle format. And he published it to a site called onthewing.org. Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward. But this is, this is what I'm trying to get at. That book was published in the year 1755. That book, one of the most helpful books on what they call this as Christian casuistry or cases of conscience, applying the Bible to spiritual maladies or some questions that Christians have at a very intense level, like how do I know one of the questions? If a promise or threatening is coming to my conscience from outside me is from God or for the Holy Spirit. Do we ask questions like that anymore? We should. That book was never out of print between 1755 and 1859. And I know I've owned five or six different copies. The one that I most recently got in the mail was from 1800. And that was a few months ago. And 1859 was the most recent copies, so if you can ever find it, the, that's the one you want online in a PDF. After 1859, that book went off the market, out of print, and was never reprinted until Volume 1 was reprinted by a Presbyterian publishing company in 1969, and there wasn't enough demand for it for it to stay in print. I discovered the book because of the 1969 reprint in a friend's library, and I immediately went to narrate it. I said, I've never seen anything like this. And I was so interested in it anyway, because in 1984... I was going to a Christian bookstore in Alexandria, Louisiana, and I was looking for the book called The Bruise Read because Lloyd-Jones made a testimony that at one time that book had been very, very helpful for him. So I go into this Christian bookstore in the Bible Belt, and I said, do you carry any Puritan works? And the manager or whoever was working said, we have a few, and she wouldn't even known the title. And there was a guy in the corner who called me over to him to talk to me because he was so surprised anybody even asked for books like the Bruce Reed. And that was the first Reformed Baptist I had ever met. He was attending the same church as Brother Lee Bratton at the time. Wow. That's why that church means a lot to me. It's no longer in existence. So. And he put a second book into my hand. And I'm telling you, brothers, I was really under awakening. I was really under spirit of bondage and fear. That second book he put into my hand was called Thoughts on Religious Experience, a banner of truth that republished in hardback form. That book came out in 1841, and I opened it up to chapter 4, and it said, Melancholy. And melancholy back then means a different type of spiritual depression than we know in our day. Back then it really meant being in the castle of giant despair. In fact, I used books on that when I taught on Pilgrim's Progress. And I want to say this to encourage you guys if you're not readers. I had a very, very poor vocabulary. I'm not going to college in 1981, because, uh, quote, preacher boys and the fundamentalist Baptist churches were reading lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon. I'd never heard of a Calvinistic Baptist yet. I was just coming to the doctrines of grace. I said, well, I better get that book. So I got lectures to my students by Spurgeon. And I am just confessing to you, I really struggled to read it. My vocabulary was so bad. 
1984, I got a copy of Thoughts on Religious Experience, and it started with piety and children, going all the way through the deathbed of the believer in such chapters as growth and grace, a backslider, sympathy and a revival, chapter four and melancholy. I devoured that book. I have given more copies of that book next to Bibles away of any book in my life. And that's why I became consumed at this because I'd gone through such dark waters before. One of the reasons why I believe that John Owen was able to write at the depth that he could on these things was because he was under awakening for five years before he got assurance of salvation. It is simply amazing to me. If you compare Charles Spurgeon and John Owen's conversion, how similar they were. They were both under awakening for five years. They both go into this small chapel to while Spurgeon was driven in there because of the winter storm, but John Owen went in there because a friend was inviting him to hear Edmund Kellamy Sr., one of the Westminster divines. Spurgeon was converted listening to, you know, probably a deacon or somebody. John Owen learned that Edmund Kellamy wasn't going to be there, and his friend said to him, do you want to go somewhere else? And Owen said... No, I need to stay here. He was so tortured in his mind from uh, five years of uh, torment and awakening that he stayed there. And God used that man, and to this day, nobody knows, even John Owen, what the name of that man was. And that man's uh, text was, uh, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? And God used that man in John Owen's conversion. But The people that are the most helpful here are the people that have been buffeted by the rugged storm, to use the analogy of Archibald Alexander, the people who have gone through the bitter waters in the past, and they needed these helps themselves. And that's why God was beginning to form me together in 1984. That's why today I have a Facebook group on thoughts on Christian experience and assurance and so on. Because pastors so often aren't able to help people that are going through what this young man is going through. I can't help everybody, and only God can, and he must shed abroad his love in their hearts. Some people need, and there is such a thing as a subjective work of the Spirit upon you where God in your inner man says, peace be still, and drives your fears away in a moment, and the Bible comes really alive to you in every promise of who Christ is becomes alive to you like you'd never seen it before. And that happened to me September 18th, 1986. I started my devotion that night at 9.30. God started working on me that night. I kept reading. I kept growing stronger. I knew this is something above mere nature going on. I never went to bed till 3 o'clock the next morning. It started September 18th, 1986. But God made me go through this so that I live in these practical works of John Owen. I have the largest number of audio file narrations of John Owen of anybody that's ever narrated him in the world because I got to go where I'm going to get the best instruction that I can trust. But anyway, I wanted to add a little bit to what you just said. Anybody else want to say anything? I don't think there's anything I can add, John. What's going on, Michael? Well, I have a couple of questions. Um, First... You were saying something when you were when, uh, quoting from John Owen when he was explaining what it means to mortify sin. And I wanted to understand better what he meant. So it was something along the lines of not 
um, not removing its being. And I don't know if he's talking about, was he talking about sin or was he talking yeah, about sin? Complaint? Yeah, so you cannot completely eradicate the presence of indwelling sin in your life because it's a law. It's going to stay there. Let's use an analogy. Let's say that you had a way, uh, maybe a jetpack or something, that the law of gravity didn't have the effect on you it would otherwise. That would be one way to escape that law. The other is, what if there is a way that you could turn down that gravity so it didn't have as much of a pull? Okay, the gravity that. is still there, but you are deadening its power. And in this case, you're deadening the bigger liveliness of indwelling sin. So it doesn't have the same power over you that it did before. And I was thinking of an analogy of this. Um, I went through a time where I was having carpal tunnel in my right arm. And if I, I always sleep on my right side and I would wake up and that arm would be completely numb. I could pick it up, it could fall to my side. I knew that there was still life there, but I couldn't have lifted anything until I get the blood flowing back into the arm. So the arm is still alive, but its ability to do anything, its vigor and power were so taken away, it was useless to me. And that's what we aim at to do with indwelling sin. But while we are in this life, because it is a law, that dwells in us, it cannot go away until we are no longer under the curse by death and the body of sin is re... That's why it says in Second Corinthians that we want to be closed on with a new body. That new body will no longer sin. But the only way that you minimize that power of sin within you is through you know, prayer, spiritual growth, acting right, out the deeds right. of the body. So the what principle are you adding vigor and power and strength right. to by using those means of grace it's the new spiritual right. principle yeah, within absolutely. you okay. so what i learn and what we'll really focus on is the only way to deaden the old man is you have to really strengthen the new man, the new man and then you'll find yourself more acting in the power of the new man yeah that was the so the other thing i was i was taking my notes I was probably writing too slow, but can you repeat the three points? I had number one written, but I didn't get two and three. Of uh, what the mortification of well, sin you, is? You said something like there are three parts of this. Yeah. And since that's kind of foundation, number one, to repeat it anyway. Yeah, number one, the cherishing and improving of the principle of grace and holiness, which is implanted in us at the new birth. You're cherishing it and improving the principle of it. You're strengthening it by all the ways and means which God has appointed, and those would be the means of grace. So prayer, fellowship with the saints is big. Reading the Word. Oh, yeah, for sure, and also really good sermons. And sometimes the sermons that are preached with the most scripture and the most power, I walk away from that really feeling spiritually invigorated. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and frequent actings of the principle, principle of grace in all of our duties, internal and external. So we act out from that new principle which is in us, which has been strengthened by improving it. And so when we keep this in a continual exercise, like doing good works to people, praying for people, reading the Bible to people, 
exhorting one another daily, Hebrews 3.13, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So if you're doing that frequently, you're strengthening the principle that would put sin to death. And thirdly, in a due application of the principle, power, and actings of grace by way of opposition to the principle, power, and actings of sin, as the whole of grace is opposed to the whole of sin, so there is no particular lust in which sin can act its power, but there is a particular grace or promise that God has given us ready to make an effectual opposition to it, whereby it is mortified. And in this application of grace in its actings in opposition to all the actings of sin consists the mystery of this great duty of mortification. But really what it comes down to there's only one way to mortify, and that's through the weapons that God has given us through His Holy Spirit and the means of grace. The more we make those come alive and thrive and be healthy, the more that the principle that is in opposition to it is weakened. Mm -hmm. And that's why Owen says, if you let it alone for a time, it recovers its strength, it gets up back on its feet, and is ready to pummel you again. So, right. point one. Point one then its application so cherishing and approving the principle of grace begun in you by the spirit applying that um, has to do practically then with using the means of grace and distinguishing that from point two point two has more to do with um, good work well let's think about what were the principles of uh, sin itself first there is the root of it and that is sin because of the fall has corrupted the heart so you got the root but then, out of the root comes evil inclinations and evil desires. Mm -hmm. So the root of the new principle consists in improving that principle of grace, but it is rooted in the new birth, a change in the governing disposition. It's called regeneration, and it affects three things. The mind is enlightened, the will is inclined to holiness and never was before, and the affections that were set against God, Romans 8, 7, now you can love him. So that's the very root of what the new principle is, the new birth. But the acting out of it are the fruits that this new disposition creates. If I have a new heart that loves God, the first act of that is going to be prayer. If I have a new inclination, the first act of the will is going to be doing those things that please God. The will is now going to make holy choices. Mm -hmm. And then the mind that has been enlightened is the result of the regeneration. The acting of that out is you'll continually pray that your mind would be more and more enlightened in spiritual things. So the second principle of mortification is that root that was implanted in you by the new birth is now acted out in the acts of the means of grace, using the means of grace to strengthen them, enlightening the understanding and so on. And the third part of the opposition is when you take those things that are the actions and you set them at war with the inclinations that are in you to want to sin. So let's say that you want to look at a woman to lust after her, but, but now you have a new inclination within you and you make choices that I will look away, I will think on those things, uh, Philippians 4, 8, whatsoever things are true and a good report and so on. So you fill your mind with those things and by 
doing these acts to come out of this new disposition, you'll continue to go contrary to the acts that sin would want to do if you were passive. Sin would want to lust. Sin would want to lust after this one. Sin would want to steal. Every look, covetous look would want to be theft. So you're putting off the deeds of the old man by the same time you're putting on the deeds of the new man. So what the new man now inclines you to do, you actually do. And by carrying these things out that are the fruits of the new disposition and the new birth, by and by you will this will war against the inclinations that sin would want to do if it could have its way. Because they can't both act at the same time. Either you turn away from what you were looking at lustfully and you fill your mind with spiritual things or you give into it and then sin has its way and it doesn't want to stop until the perfect sin is committed. And when the perfect sin is committed, which it aims at, and it is done habitually, it brings forth death. So we would say that if somebody habitually, as a habit, is not just backslidden, but always chooses those things that sin wants them to do, then we have to argue from that. Not just that he's going to lack joy and peace, but we have to press him with the fact that uh, you profess to be a Christian, but if you're living in these habits... Romans 6.14 says sin still has dominion over you. That's why John Owen wrote a work called of the dominion of sin and grace so that you can ask yourself if you're in that state, well, do I have any proof that there's a new principle within me and the dominion is grace? Or does the evidences show that I'm still under the dominion of sin because this rules every part of my being? Now, a person who's groaning inside and he can't stand to be this way, oh, wretched man that I am, that person has a new principle within him because he groans because he is not under sin's dominion and he can never rest satisfied being there. Does that help? I've through that quite a bit. Yeah, and, the wretched and, man that I am, things. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, me too. <laughs> uh, go ahead, okay. Blake. Well, the other important thing, and I think it relates a lot to what we just talked about, the other thing that I notice what points uh, out about all this is to mortify sin is to think of it like a healthy athlete. Just as an athlete works out so he could be yeah. a better athlete and to, you know, compete in the tournament. And I even think... Uh, if I remember correctly, even Paul even makes mention of that in Philippians chapter and, 3. And also Acts uh, chapter 9, I buffet my body, I bring it into subject. Yeah, it's using the yes. imagery of an athlete there. Mm-hmm. Correct. So we must work out our Christian life the same way. And as Paul makes mention, I believe also in uh, Ephesians, keep working your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, you're working out of you. I Well, I Romans 6... Um, that point to where you're acting out the new man I really think that Romans 6 gets into this a lot it says um, let's see what verse it is here but um, yeah don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present your members to God as instruments of righteousness Um, what it says is that you know you once offered your members as instruments to sin leading to more lawlessness but now Present your members as instruments of righteousness to God, leading to sanctification. And what that flows out of is the very first verse in Romans 6. 
how can you that have died to sin? That's in the aorist tense. It means something that happened with present results. It happened in the past. It has present results. How can you that have died to sin live any longer there? It's impossible. You have a new principle. Now act it out of you. But also uh, what you just quoted is also in Romans 12, isn't it? Of yourselves as... Well, let's take a look at... Uh, you got Romans 12? Yeah, but yeah, but the end, the end of that uh, in Romans twelve. Oh, this may have been what I was looking for. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to regard to its lusts. That's what I was thinking of. You know, when we if we go off on a rabbit trail, that's perfectly fine here because the fact of the matter is, once we lay this foundation. And we begin to understand the spiritual foundation from which we act out as new creatures in Christ. Then if things that bother you about certain aspects of sanctification come in, we'll have a groundwork and a root to which we can uh, deal with those things. Uh, for example, I mean, Archibald Alexander talks about even, well, what if I have really bad dreams that you know aren't? Right. Well, you would ask yourself, um, if you did not have a corrupt nature, if you weren't corrupt by nature, and if you still have indwelling sin in you, still in your sleep, you're making a choice. You know, that's kind of an odd example. But all of these things can be drawn out. And maybe one day what I'll do is I'll uh, bring cases of conscience here and we'll look at some of the questions that are asked there. For example, this is a really good one. And the very first question in there is, how do I know whether my worship at church is in the spirit or merely from natural feeling? My animal feelings are being worked up. And that can be by the music. That's why we even have to be careful. Rock Christian music can affect you merrily carnally and you think you're being moved by the spirit and there's an imitation to every fruit of the spirit this is what jonathan edwards talks about in the religious affections the devil wants to counterfeit them and then point to the counterfeit and say those are your spiritual fruits you're okay and we need to learn to be able to tell the difference between them 